Oh, it's great to be here this morning and uh, see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, Greg and Marissa Bowles are like some of our best friends, and so we stayed with them last night and uh, got absolutely no sleep, but it was wonderful. But yeah, I did reach out to Scott. At first, he was a little tentative, and I said, Scott, why don't we have a competition to see if I can come? If I win, I get to come. Let's, let's have a series of competitions that'll test our wits and our will. No, that didn't happen at all. He, he said, sure, come. So this morning, uh, I want to highlight a couple things. I do want to talk about uh, what we do at Compassion Canada um, as we exist to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. But also, I want to uh, open the scriptures uh, together. And we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. I'm going I'm to read that in a little bit. But um, I, yeah, I am married to Jessica, who uh, is a lifelong friend of Marissa, I think since you were in high school the two of you, and uh, my wife used to play piano here at uh, young adult nights and uh, with Marissa, and that was a lot of fun back then. Uh, but I do have three children. My oldest is 12. I have a daughter who's nine in the middle, and my youngest son's eight. And when I was about their age, I remember my mom, this one time in particular, going grocery shopping, and she came home and was unloading the car with all these groceries. And, and this is maybe the mid-80s, and she said, Brian, you know, each one of these bags of groceries about $10. I went grocery shopping uh, just before Christmas. I didn't go to Costco, so it wasn't that bad. But I went grocery shopping, and I think each bag was probably closer to 50 Now, despite the higher cost of groceries, to be honest, I, I actually don't buy less. I, I just spend more. It's the same when I fill my car up with gas. Gas can be $2 a liter. I don't drive any less. I just spend more on gas. And so the reality is, you know, I, I have enough. And I think for most of us, we probably, we, we have actually more than enough. And, um, the World Bank, uh, it defines extreme poverty as this. People living in extreme poverty, living on less than $2.15 a day. Now, as a result of the pandemic... An additional 70 million people have been pushed to that level of poverty. And so today, worldwide, there's actually about 719 million people living in extreme poverty. That's 9.3% of the world's population who live on less than $2.15 a day. Now, the world's extreme poor, they are subsistence day laborers, and it is exactly as it sounds. You work and you get paid that same day, and with that money you get paid with, you go buy groceries or you pay your rent or whatever it is you need to do. And so if you don't work, you don't get paid and you don't eat. And uh, the pandemic was was, um, catastrophic for many people living in extreme poverty. Add to that, uh, about a year ago, a war started in Ukraine. It actually probably started many years before that, but... Uh, Ukraine exports enough food to feed 600 million people, and on top of that, they export a lot of fertilizer that the world uses to grow food. And now we have a global food crisis on our hands. We feel it when we buy our groceries. Prices have gone up. In many underfunded countries, uh, it's actually difficult for those countries to even import food just because it's expensive. And even if they could import it, Can people afford to buy it? And so I hear statistics like 700 million and 
$2.15 a day. And you know what it does to me? I go numb. I, I don't know what to do with that. It, it's just numbers I can't wrap my head around. I'm so far removed from that reality. This morning, I want to highlight God's best plan for taking care of those, not just living in extreme poverty, but the lost, the least, and the broken. I'm going to spoil, spoil my sermon here. Uh, spoiler alert. The, the plan, God's best plan for taking care of the world's poor and the lost, the least, and the broken. Well, that plan actually involves me and it involves you. So James, chapter 2 Verses 14 to 26. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a phone with a Bible app, um, follow along with me. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Or suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, you know, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Say you have faith for you believe there is one God. Hey, good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. James, the author, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and at at first glance, it it seems like, hey, you know what? There's a contradiction here between James and Paul and what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 and 4, where it says our being made right with God isn't based on our faith, or sorry, it is based on faith, not by obeying the law. Paul teaches in Romans, if we read it, that It is not our good deeds which make us acceptable to God. Rather, we are justified and saved by faith. Like a pretty significant contradiction. Perhaps another way to look at it, it could be two sides of the same coin. We're saved by faith and our faith is shown true by our good deeds. A more helpful way to view this apparent contradiction is that You know what? It's not really a contradiction at all. Rather, the fruit of our faith in Christ is good works, how we live. In verses 14 to 17, James is giving us an example of faith in action, what he calls good deeds. It's taking action to help someone who's clearly 
clearly in need. James says, you know, it's not enough just to give them a blessing. Stay warm and eat well, my friend. And he asks rhetorically, what good? What good does that do? Verse 17, so you see, faith by itself, it just isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, that faith is dead and useless. Then in verse 18 to 20, It's a rhetorical device James uses, a a theoretical conversation between two Christians. If you want to argue that faith is all you need to demonstrate your salvation, if theological orthodoxy is sufficient, if that's all you need, well, then even God's enemies, the demons, are orthodox. Demons are monotheistic. They only believe there's one God. But that's not what's at issue here. Faith is. Faith is defined by its object, and in the Bible, faith is described as a saving faith, meaning faith only in Jesus Christ is a faith that saves. James, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to Jewish Christians, and in verse 21, he furthers his appeal, his argument, that we need good works to prove our faith, and he, he cites the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. James chapter 2, verse 22 reads, So you see his faith and his actions work together. His actions made his faith complete. Or, to read it another way, his actions made his faith perfect. It's basically saying Abraham's actions were made Our relationship with Jesus grows deeper and more mature only as we live in obedience to God. Quite frankly, our faith grows cold when we don't live like it. We, we don't live up to what we believe, when we don't have good works, the things that God has for us to do or has commanded us to do. And For Abraham, it took a long time for his faith to mature, and it's the same for us. Abraham, throughout his life, experienced a lot of ups and downs. He doubted God for a while. He lied about who his wife was. He got involved in sexual immorality with his maidservant, Hagar. He was not a good father to his son, Ishmael. Abraham had some serious sin issues, but his faith was maturing because even though he had numerous failures, he he was trying day by day to live this thing out. His walk with God. And this all culminates and comes to light if you were to read in Genesis chapter 15, chapter 15 to chapter 22, the story of Abraham. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and, was, and so was justified in the sight of God. But it wasn't until Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham's faith had matured enough through his works that people began to call him a man of righteousness. They began to think of him as righteous also. Righteous, just another word for right relationship or being in right relationship with God. James 2 verse 23 points out, And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith and he was even called a friend of God. So we are shown right to be right with God, not by what we, sorry, by what we do, not by faith alone. So in essence, James 
verse 23 is the distilled version of Genesis chapter 15 to 22. That Abraham would be called a friend of God. This ultimately would happen at the biggest test of his faith when he was 100 years old. God asked him to sacrifice his only son. All of the ups and downs, successes and failures came to result in this moment, a defining moment for him. Was he going to obey God? Was he going to believe in God's promise for him that he would be the father of many nations yet have to sacrifice his only son? Abraham did obey God and he believed that God would provide a way and just as he had up to that point, and, and we know the story, God did. There was a ram in the thicket was a substitute for his son, and Abraham, as a result, was called, he was called a friend of God. Abraham was in right relationship with God. Verse 24 in James 2, so you see we're shown to be right with God, not by what we do, sorry, so you see we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith. Then something in the text happens, something Interesting, something that's meant to shake us and jar us. James goes from using Abraham as an example of faith in action or an example of of someone doing good deeds to citing Rahab, the prostituted woman. If we go back to the idea of ancient Jewish rhetoric, which James is using, the way ancient Jewish people would try to convince each other that something was true or right, the highest and most important and most respected example you could use was that of Abraham, our father Abraham. That was the ultimate name you could possibly quote to prove your point. The next most important person in the history of Judaism was Moses and then Jacob, David perhaps, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Those are people you would Quote or cite if you're making an argument, not Rahab the prostituted woman. If, if you're making an argument in, in, to an ancient Jewish audience, back then you, you just wouldn't cite a woman. It was only men's, men who were respected or, or thought of as persons. So you'd cite a man. And, and secondly, if you're making an argument, you weren't going to make an appeal to a Gentile. To a Jewish audience, that makes no sense. But all that gets put aside because surely you would not quote the lifestyle of a prostituted woman as an example of faith in action. The story of Rahab is found in the Old Testament book of Joshua. And when the Canaanites came searching for the Israelite spies, she hid them in her house and then helped them escape the city. And ultimately, Rahab, she was rewarded for her faith and her household were spared from the destruction that was to come. Rahab is also written about in Hebrews chapter 11, if you remember that chapter, the hall of faith. Some great examples of faith and faithfulness Rahab's actions were not the reason for her faith. They were the result of her faith. I mean, imagine if she had only believed, didn't act on it. 
Imagine if she said, you know, I believe these men are God's people and I believe that God is good and he has a plan for them, but I'm not going to get involved. Not in this. Messy. It's too inconvenient. If that had been the case, we'd be, we would be talking about Rahab, the prostituted woman, as, as not being one of the greatest uh, examples of faith ever. But she did take action, and thank God she did. She hid those men. And all these years later, we're still reading about her. She's described as like a hero of the faith. So friends, faith really, our faith, it, it really only counts when it's put into action. Faith is a verb. Faith counts when we believe it and then live like it. And finally, in verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith, it's dead without good works. And this is the power of the gospel. Gospel at work. We are saved and justified through faith in Jesus Christ, and then the fruit of that salvation, the fruit of that faith, are simply good works. The Bible also tells us that God has prepared many good works in advance for us. God has already set about some good things for you and I to do, and to do together as a church. And you're already doing many of those things. You've discovered them. And there's more new things for us to do that God has. It, it's interesting that James began his argument that faith without works is dead, using the example of someone in need of food or clothing, basic necessities. I, I don't think this is by whim or by accident that he uses this example. God is deeply concerned with the needs of the poor. In fact, in the Bible, there's over 2,000 references to the poor. Not only is God concerned about the poor, but Jesus goes so far as to say in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, I, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When we help those who might be considered the least among us, we are actually, truthfully, in fact, helping Jesus. Let me say that again. When we help or do something to those who might be considered the least among us in our society, we are in fact truthfully helping Jesus himself. God identifies so closely with the poor and the vulnerable and those that stand on the margins of society that he would consider himself one of them. Here in the book of James, we understand that Faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good work. Good work like taking care of the world's poor and vulnerable, the poor and our neighbors. That's the kind of religion that God finds appealing to us. If you're going to practice a religion, practice that one. So what place do works have in the life of a follower of Jesus? They don't get us eternal life. They don't help us keep eternal life. But good works do show that we belong to Jesus and we are a part of his kingdom and that God's promises are true. What we do matters, friends. It really does. How we live matters. 
that we would care for the poor and vulnerable in our world matters, and it's one of those good works that Jesus himself is deeply, deeply invested in. Oh, Jesus cares for the vulnerable of our world, people who are at the end of the rope, people who are maxed out in their credit, burned out in life, broken in body, broken in spirit, depressed, full of anxiety. God is with them, and he counts himself as one among them. Jesus cares about the poor both economically and spiritually. So, I work for an organization called Compassion Canada, and as I said, we exist to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And it's out of a response to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment that we are child-focused, Christ-centered, and church-based as an organization. That is to say, we love We love children, we love Jesus, and we love the local church. And at Compassion, our desire is that every child in one of our programs is known, loved, and connected. We also feel an urgent sense that we need to reach more children more quickly. On the practical side, We partner in 27 countries around the world, and we work through local churches. And all of our programs are mostly run by volunteers. Each church will have what we call a child development center as a part of it, and that will be uh, run by one paid compassion staff, but the rest are volunteers. And what will happen is when a partner church in, say, Nicaragua or Guatemala or Uganda partners with us, they'll invite... 250 children from the community, unchurched children from the community to come. And each one of those kids, each one of those 250, from the age of 1 to the age of 18, will spend on average of about six hours a week at the local church. And there, they'll be assigned a tutor to help them with their schoolwork, and they'll get formal and non-formal educational opportunities. They'll often get a meal midweek and supplementary food to bring home. If a child needs dental care or medical care. Now imagine if you're living on $2.15 a day or even $10 a day. If you have to pay for your doctor, we don't taxes, but I just go to the doctor. In many countries around the world, that's not the case. You've got to pay out of pocket. So if you're sick, you have to decide, you know, is it worth going? Now what if you've got six kids? Which one do I choose? We have to eat. So Compassion provides medical, dental care, and most importantly, these children, they're discipled in the way of Jesus. And so what we're really, we, Compassion has been known as a, as a child sponsorship organization. That's how we fund the work that's done, okay? What we actually do is called holistic child development. And what that means is we're not just handing out food and we're not just handing out Bibles. We're, we're doing both. Both are important. That's why we want to do both. Holistic child development. And i got to tell you this. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, when a child enters in to our compassion program, when they're sponsored, they will give their lives to Jesus. It happens again and again. There's a direct correlation there. When a child's sponsored, they spend time at the church, they're discipled, and they become... And for each child, and each year we see 
want to get this number right, about 128,000 children give their lives to Christ. Children who ask Jesus to be the leader of their lives. And for each one of those children, over the lifetime they're in a compassion program, they will bring three to four of their family members to Christ. Talk about multiplication. And these churches are, are really growing. Like, this is real church growth. This isn't like, you know, me going to another church and now I'm counted as church growth in that new church, right? Like, no, this is real church growth. And so the primary way, as I said, that compassion pays for this work to be done is, is through the individual sponsorship of a child. And so your sponsorship has a direct multiplier effect on the kingdom. Poverty steals hope. Poverty steals hope. And so when you sponsor a child, it empowers them with opportunities. It lets them know that someone in this world cares about them too. It provides them with a message that there is going to be a better future and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. If you already sponsor a child, I want to say thank you. You're providing that child with a message of hope. Sponsorship. It costs $47 a month, and it provides that child with the opportunity to be known, loved, and connected. Uh, For an extra $10 a month, for $57 a month, you can provide for Compassion's Urgent Needs Fund, which if there's a disaster in the world or like in the global food crisis, we want to provide food, food hampers for family and seeds to grow vegetable gardens and livestock that money goes to top up those programs that need it most. 47 bucks a month. In the foyer, there are two tables with photos of children on it. And you can go back there and have a look at those and choose a child. And it's, we make it really easy for you to fill out the card. It takes like two minutes. You fill it out with your name, address, phone number, your bank account, or a credit card. And it comes directly out of your account. Sponsoring a child, you know, it costs less than $1.56 a day. That's less than a cup of coffee at Tim's, you know? Considerably less than if you go to Starbucks, like I do. I think it's worth it, but um, considerably less than if you go to Starbucks. And in fact, if you are a Starbucks coffee drinker, you may want to consider sponsoring a whole village this morning. (laughs) You know, how we live, it really matters. Doing the little things matters. You know, $47, it it might not seem like much in comparison to 719 million people living on less than $2.15 a day, but think about this. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus asked his disciples to gather up the food they had, and so they did, and they came back to him with, frankly, what is a pathetic amount of food. The disciples were like, this is, we told you, Jesus, this isn't going to happen. Send them away. And Jesus prayed, and miraculously, the food was multiplied to feed thousands of people. The, the, the person who gave that, that bread and fish was a little boy, right? It was the faith of a child, An offering given in faith. You know, Jesus, it's not much, but what I have is is yours. 
Did that boy's offering make a difference? Yes, in the hands of Jesus, yes. The life of a child, it really can be changed by sponsoring them for $47 a month. You know, I can't even take my family out for dinner or lunch after church for 47 bucks. It's probably a lot closer to 100 But that $47 given to God as an act of faith can change the life of a child. And it, like I said, in the foyer, there's photos of children back there. This morning, we're, we're really focusing on the country of Honduras, Nicaragua, and Guatemala those three countries. If you want to sponsor from another country, just ask some of our volunteers and they'll help you uh, get that figured out. Once you do sponsor a child, this is really cool, you can actually send and receive letters from them, personal letters. And we make letter writing writing really easy. You can do it online or you can do it the old-fashioned way. But when you write a letter, you can write these words in it, life-giving words. You can say to that child or that teenager, whoever you're sponsoring, you can say, you know what? I love you. And I want you to know God loves you. And I'm praying for you. And you know what? You're special. You're really special. And with those words, you're gonna, you're gonna push back against poverty. It's like I said, poverty steals hope, and you're gonna plant seeds of hope in that child's life. And that will help that child to be known, loved, and connected and connected with Jesus. I want us to watch a two-minute video right now. And it's going to show the impact uh, of sponsoring a child, what it makes, and the impact of writing a letter. Do you remember um, the stat, the numbers I gave you at the start of my message, you know, at the beginning, 719 million people now living in extreme poverty on less than $2.15 a day? I said it, you know, it's overwhelming and it makes me feel numb. And the temptation for me is to think, you know what, I can't do anything about this. My piddly little amount is not even a drop in the bucket to changing that. And then I'm reminded of the words of Mother Teresa. and She said this, if you can't feed 100 people, then feed just one. Feed just one. 
Before I close, I want to tell you a quick story about a small six-year-old girl in a Central American country. And this was at the start of the pandemic, and her mom lost her job. Okay? And anxiety filled the home. Her mom just could not hide what was going on. How would they eat? How would they pay rent? And the little girl said to her mom, Mom, don't worry. The church is going to help us. The church is going to help us. And again, the mom could not hide her lack of hope. She'd been disappointed before and would probably be disappointed again. And then a few hours later, there was a knock at the door. And there was a couple of people from the local church with a food hamper, and they said, hey, your daughter is one of ours, and you're one of us. And this food hamper is going to give you enough to eat for the next two or three weeks. And when it runs out, there's going to be more on the way and more after that. And so that's what our local churches have been doing throughout the pandemic and continue to do that because of the global food crisis. They leave, and the little girl looks at her mom and screams, See, Mom, I told you the church would help. I told you. That's what sponsoring a child helps a local church be the hands and feet of Jesus. If only, <clears throat> if only we had the faith of a child. When you exercise your faith, it's about caring for people and doing good in Jesus' name, whether it's to your next-door neighbor or to one of those children on the table in the foyer. And, and be reminded of James chapter 2, verse 17. That's right. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead. Now, some of you, like I said, probably already sponsor a child through Compassion or some other great organization. Thank you. It's a good work that shows your faith is alive. And perhaps uh, the Spirit of God has brought something else to mind for you that, that you need to do this week or today. Take action in obedience. Let's encourage obedience in one another. How we live matters. The little things matters. Our faith and action matters. Let's cheer one another on toward love and good deeds. We are, God's, we are the people of God's passion. The people have his special affection, and he desires that none should be left outside in the cold, that none should go hungry or without clothes, that none should be unloved. And so regardless of whether or not you sponsor a child this morning, let your faith be shown true by how you live and the way you treat other people because in verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith